Can I add my welcome to the welcome Ian has given you and uh, welcome you to our continuing series on the little letter to the Philippines, a short letter, but contains so much that can transform our thinking. So this evening we have reached Well, I have reached, and you have now reached the, the subject for this evening, uh, overcoming conflict. And we're looking at the end of chapter three and the start of chapter four. Now, the context uh, of this and the need to overcome conflict has to do with Paul's goal, which he states at the start of chapter two. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. It was very precious to Paul to see uh, a Christian church where people were genuinely united. Now, if you've ever been in a church like that, just count yourself lucky because it doesn't last very long. And tonight we're going to look at two typical situations which can disrupt unity, and we'll see how Paul uh, overcomes or teaches the church to overcome that, and how he shows, uh, particularly the Lord Jesus, uh, working in Christians enables us to overcome the deepest of conflicts. So let's read uh, our passage tonight. As I mentioned, there are two parts to it the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4. So chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And the second uh, situation then carries on in verse 2 of chapter 4. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, when Paul is considering uh, things that can arise to disrupt the unity of the church, there are two threats that he identifies in these two short sections that we have read. In the first section, He's talking about unity in the face of external differences. Differences between Christians 
in the secular world, if you like. And then, in the, at the start of chapter 4, he deals with differences inside the church. So differences in the outside world between Christians, and then secondly, uh, differences between Christians within the church. And both of those, as we'll see, can uh, destroy unity or can certainly threaten it. Now, to understand the context of what Paul says in these verses, we need to go back to the founding of the church at Philippi. Now, David Farrell gave us an introduction uh, to how the church at Philippi was founded, and we read that in Acts 16. It doesn't give us all the details of what happened, but the details it gives are very significant for understanding this letter. Philippi was a Roman city. It was uh, used by the Romans to reward uh, their soldiers, their centurions, their, their generals, those that had fought well, and as a sort of a pension, they were allocated a place in Philippi where they could have a good lifestyle. So Philippi was a Roman colony. And as you probably know, if you've read the history of colonization, that the incoming colonizers often have a much superior form of life. And it was the same in Philippi. Roman citizens had special special privileges, but in particular, they had legal privileges. The law, they had, uh, they had to be treated fairly by the law. They had to be given a fair trial. And also, they were usually more wealthy than the locals. And uh, they had better homes. They had plenty of food. They had better clothes. Now, nowadays, uh, because of... Uh, welfare and so on, and, and uh, because we tend to be more affluent, things like that don't seem to grab us maybe as much as they would at the time. But even better food. I mean, at, at the time here, and indeed in certain parts of the world nowadays, if you're poor, it doesn't mean that you have to buy second-hand clothes. It may mean that you, you starve to death because you just had no food at all. It may be that you've only got rags for clothes. Maybe you don't have any home at all. So in a society where there's a big division between rich and poor, between privileged and unprivileged, it's in biblical times, the difference was devastating. It's not that such as we would see in, in Belfast today. And uh, so much so that the Lord told a parable uh, about two people from either extreme. Let me just remind you of that because it's the details that it gives that are quite significant. The Lord said there was a rich man. And then he describes how the rich man was dressed. He was clothed in purple and fine linen, the most expensive clothes. He feasted sumptuously every day. Lots of food, as much more food than he could ever eat. And at his gate was led a poor man named Lazarus. Notice that his house 
it wasn't a front door. There was a gate outside, so it was obviously a house that had surrounded by a wall with a gate, uh, perhaps a guarded entrance. But on the other hand, there was this poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So poverty in this story meant starvation. It meant uh, just sitting at somebody's gate, hoping that you might get some scraps to eat. The, the, then, uh, although the rich man ended up in hell, we read that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abram's side. I've highlighted that a little bit because when this poor man died, heaven gave him an escort. He was given like a royal escort into heaven, this poor man. Just highlighting in the, the story that the Lord Jesus told that status in this world is often the wrong way round. That from heaven's point of view, the aristocracy in heaven could well be beggars like this poor man, Lazarus. So this issue of privilege and wealth, side by side with people who are poor and who have no privileges, is something that was very important even in the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And in the church at Philippi, that Paul is writing this letter to, some members were Roman citizens and some were not. And just imagine the impact of that on life in the church. How do you create unity in a church when there are major social and economic differences? When there are very wealthy people and very poor people? Do you just say, well, that's life. We are the lucky ones. And you say to the poor people, well, it's just unfortunate that you're poor, but that's how society is. Or if, you find, if rich people find it uncomfortable to have very poor, starving people in the church with them, badly dressed, uh, the, the temptation would be to say, well, let's have two churches, one for the wealthy, privileged people, and one for the poor people, and then there won't be the same embarrassment. That was not the New Testament solution. But it is a major problem. Today, I suppose, there is more equality in society than there was. But even in Victorian times, if you go into some uh, older churches, you'll hear that certain pews were reserved for the wealthy, the landed gentry, you could buy a pew and nobody was allowed to sit in that. It had your name on it. And the poor people, well, they sat at the back. And the rich man was in his castle, the poor man at his gate. And that was just accepted as the lot of humanity. And the rich people came into church, enjoyed the service, and went out and left the poor people. So, as I say, today we sometimes don't realize just uh, how shocking the diversity must have been in somewhere like Philippi. Now, let's see how Paul addresses that. What does he say in this situation? Well, he, he describes some people. Uh, I'll just make two points from what he says. 
uh, in this passage at the end of chapter 3. He talks about those whose God is their belly. <clears throat> now, that's not simply saying, talking about those who are a little bit overweight uh, and who like a, a good steak nearly every day. Think of that story that the Lord, the parable the Lord Jesus told about the rich man who feasted sumptuously every day. And even in hell, we, we read about what he said. It was his tongue that he wanted satisfied, his appetites. And just as that man ended up in hell, so too Paul says about these people, their end is destruction. But as part of the cure, I just want to highlight something that he says. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, that may not seem very comforting at first sight, but that word citizenship raises, Paul is deliberately raising a really important issue, which goes back to his visit to Philippi. Because Paul and Silas, when they came to Philippi, they, they went to a ladies' prayer meeting, first of all, outside the city, the church was formed, but then eventually Paul and Silas, the authorities, turned against them, and they were both beaten and thrown into prison. Now, Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens, and they had the right to a fair trial before any punishment. And yet, they had been beaten, brutally beaten, and jailed, thrown into the, the dungeon, the most secure prison, with no questions being asked about their citizenship. And we read that Paul and Silas only revealed their Roman citizenship after they had been beaten and imprisoned. Now, I find that strange. Would you have done that? I mean, if you were about to be flogged, and thrown into jail, and you were a citizen, your citizenship gave you the right to a fair trial before any punishment. I think you would have said, well, just one moment, sir, I've got to tell you something. Uh, my citizenship guarantees me a fair trial. Now, Paul and Silas, for some very good reasons, as we'll see, chose not to do that. It's not that it's more, more spiritual to take a flogging, because we read later in Acts 22 that when Paul was about to be beaten again by a Roman soldier, he said, just a moment, I'm a Roman citizen. And so he did use his citizenship in certain cases to avoid abuse of uh, power and avoid punishment. But in this particular case, in Philippi, he and Silas chose not to. It was an intelligent choice. It wasn't that he forgot. He had a very specific reason for that. First of all, he was thinking about the church that was going to be formed, that he was going to leave behind. And if he had escaped this beating, if he and Silas had escaped the beating through claiming the rights of their citizenship, it would have reinforced the uh, privileged stroke, unprivileged divide in the future church. So remember the church at Philippi that he was going to leave behind would contain some Roman citizens, very privileged people, and some of the locals who would be poor with no rights. If Paul had used his rights 
to escape the punishment uh, that he and Silas suffered. Uh, that would have sent a message to the church saying, look, it's just a fact of life that some of you are privileged and some of you aren't. And so Paul chose not to use his citizenship, his Roman citizenship, to avoid suffering and injustice. And secondly, I mean, how would he be able to tell this church to endure, endure persecution? The local people, they would just have said to him, well, it's all right for you. You've got Roman citizenship to uh, protect you. We don't. And so Paul, knowing the, the church that was developing in Philippi and that he would leave behind, chose to live without the rights that uh, his citizen, citizenship gave him and chose to live like one of the locals without calling on his citizenship. Now, just one or two lessons from this for ourselves. Would you take a beating and go to prison for the sake of unity in the church? I've known Christians who would love to give a beating to others in the church. But is that how much you value unity in the church? If there's economic uh, diversity in a church, I mean, you may be wealthy enough to afford a Rolls Royce and to drive up to the front of the church every Sunday in your Rolls Royce and, you know, someone who arrives just walking on foot or coming by bus, you, you can say, well, you know, that's life. But would someone like that, would you be prepared to come in just, you might call, an ordinary car? so as not to embarrass those in the church who can't afford anything that luxurious. We have members in our church who do that. And they do it for the same reason that Paul took a beating. Or perhaps your, uh, your parents, you care for your kids, and they go. there's youth work maybe in the church where there's a mixture of well-off kids, kids from a well-off background, and some from a very poor background. And the parents, sometimes without thinking, kit their own kids out in the latest designer gear, uh, whatever that might be, the most expensive one. They think they're doing their kids a favor. And the kids come along, and sometimes all that does is to reinforce the social and economic divisions. Paul was very careful not to do that, to the extent that he was prepared to be beaten, badly beaten, that he and Silas were prepared to go to jail so as not to reinforce economic and social and privileged divisions. So what he's saying is more privileged members should not use their privileges if it would reinforce social and economic divisions. I'll leave that with you for yourselves just to analyze um, how you might follow that same spirit. And thinking back to that the story the Lord Jesus told about the rich man who just lived for his food and lived in a big house with the most expensive clothes. When Paul is talking in this passage, he says that flaunting these people who flaunt their social and economic superiority, that is evidence of living as what he calls enemies of the cross of Christ. That's how he describes them at the end of chapter 3. 
Now, we're not, I think here we're talking about people like that rich man in the Lord's story who ended up in hell. People who are unresponsive to the, the love of God, people who are unresponsive to the teaching of Scripture about these divisions, and in particular, the teaching in this letter. He says, Paul says, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And just to reinforce that, can I remind you of his teaching in chapter 2 about Christ himself? There he says, your attitude should be the same as Christ. Christ was equal with God. But although he was equal with God, he humbled himself. He became not just a human being, but he came as a servant. He, was, he had no reputation. He was not treated the way his, his privileged position uh, he might have, or someone else might have expected him to be treated, but he calmly took that so that he could be like us. He was brought up in the poorest of circumstances, uh, and he owned practically nothing here on earth. And yet, that chapter 2 tells us that he was honored in heaven, and he was exalted to the highest place and given a name beyond every name. And just like Lazarus was escorted into heaven by that group of angels, sort of outriders, as it were, carrying him on their shoulder, shoulder high, uh, honoring him as he was brought into heaven, so too anyone who lives like the Lord Jesus, in heaven's view, they are the ones who are honored. So, as Christians, we need to regard one another in the light of our status in heaven, not our status on earth. But how are we regarded in heaven? Now, sometimes it's difficult to know that, but some people are honored. Daniel, in the Old Testament, uh, an angel came to him and called him, he told him he was highly esteemed in heaven. And the reason was he prayed. He prayed a lot. That's why he was known in heaven. That's why he was highly esteemed, because his prayers were so influential. So, as I say, heaven's standards for esteeming Christians are very different from earth, and we should apply heaven's standards. And that's why Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, because Christians have a status. By becoming a Christian, we have a citizenship that's far beyond Roman citizenship. It's citizenship in heaven, heavenly, divine citizenship, that rich Christians and poor Christians in this world share. And those local Christians in Philippi had a dignity, had a wealth in heaven's eyes that Rome could not compete with. And it was important for the Roman citizens in the church at Philippi to recognize that, to treat the local Christians not as underprivileged, but to treat them and genuinely to regard them as having a privilege far beyond anything that Caesar could give. Now, that's challenging. But to willingly refuse to use our privileges for the sake of Christi Christian unity that requires a love, a love which is beyond human natural love. It requires a depth of love 
for one another, which is beyond natural human love. And that's why Paul, I think, at the end of this little section, he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The only way you can achieve this genuinely, this unity, is if you have a love that comes beyond us. And it's that love comes from the Lord Jesus himself. Non-Christians cannot imitate this. They have a different doctrine. They say, well, you just accept the disparity and diversity in life, but they cannot overcome it because to overcome it requires divine outpouring of God's love into our hearts. So that's the first source of disunity that Paul deals with, disunity, if you like, because of external factors. But then he comes briefly to an issue of potential disunity on the inside. So how do we retain unity in the face of internal differences? Here, the situation is that there were two women in the church, uh, Eudia and Syntyche, who previously had worked with Paul, very active workers in spreading the gospel, worked really hard side by side and with Paul when he was in Philippi. If you remember, the the church at Philippi was founded, uh, starting the founding members were women like Lydia. And these were well-off people, well-off women, active businesswomen as well. But then Paul had left. So let's, uh, I just want to uh, focus on one thing that maybe doesn't come out in modern translations. But Paul had left, and that left these two women with the work carrying on. And it seems that they had disagreements. They wanted to go in different directions. And this had led to tension, to disagreement, and to conflict. Now, what's the solution in a situation like that? These were not so much unspiritual ladies. They were active, spiritual ladies. Uh, If they had been passive, there wouldn't have been any conflict. But they were both really committed to serving the Lord. And it's because that was the very reason why there was conflict. Now, Paul asks, he doesn't tell them, he says, I want, them to, I want you to agree, but he doesn't leave it there. He says, he appeals to his friend, whom in, in this version is called true companion. That word companion, uh, I suppose the modern translators uh, find the original word and concept uh, rather un- unusual. I think if you have the authorized version, it says true yoke fellow. Now, you probably haven't used that word very often in the last week. So what is a yoke fellow? Because that's, it's really important that we see uh, who Paul is referring to here. He's talking to his friend, and his friend's name, if that's what it is, means yoke fellow. Now, a yoke fellow is referring actually to an oxen. Okay, nowadays we have tractors, but before tractors, they used oxen to pull a plow. Uh, a plow was plowing a field. 
uh, one, ox and one ox couldn't do it. It was just too tough generally, so you needed two. But of course, if you have two oxen pulling the same plow and one uh, goes one direction, the other goes the other, you're, you're lost. So you had to tie the oxen together. And the way that they uh, tied them together was to yoke them together, to have a, a piece of wood that was tied to the necks of both of them, and that kept them the same distance uh, apart. And it meant that they could just both go straight ahead. So they worked together, and they were yoked together. And if you were one of the oxes, the ox, one of the oxen, the ox on your other side was your yoke fellow, a fellow uh, ox uh, who was yoked to you. So uh, that is the concept then of yoke fellow. It's referring to an ox that you work with side by side and you work hard, but you pull in the same direction. Now, that sort of imagery and those words are used even by the Lord Jesus. And this is maybe one reason why Paul uh, has the, uh, the courage to use this one. One of the most famous sayings of the Lord Jesus is this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, it is possible that the imagery that the Lord Jesus is using here is saying, look, if you want direction in life, if you want to work in a productive way, then work alongside me. The Lord is almost seems to be referring to himself as one of the oxen and yoked to us. And if you want to have rest in your soul, you need to be yoked with the Lord and your labor will then become productive. It's quite startling imagery. But that's what Paul says, and that's the picture that he uses for these two ladies. And in particular, it's to his friend. So here's uh, just a summary of the situation in Philippi, the workers in Philippi. That it began with go-ahead woman. Now that's I, by go ahead, I'm thinking, say, of Lydia, who had set up an international business. She had come from Turkey um, over to Macedonia, and she worked amongst the very wealthy Roman citizens there in Philippi. And they played a very significant role in the founding and the expansion of the church at Philippi. And these two women had worked happily together, side by side, as part of a team led by Paul. But when Paul left, that left a gap, and it exposed a certain lack of leadership. And that's why the tension and the conflict arose. The two women started pulling in different directions. And so Paul uh, asks uh, to restore peace. He asks his friend. He calls his friend a yoke fellow, and he says more or less to, them, to his friend, join the team and tie, be tied together to both of them. Take Paul's place in the team and work side by side with the two women. Good workers do not always make good leaders. And so just to end with just one or two lessons uh, from this situation today, 
just make a point that workers in a church need to be team players, not prima donnas. Okay, the question of who leads it should not be the important bit, but we should work side by side with one another and side by side with the Lord and take his yoke. Now, with Paul leaving, that seemed to have prompted uh, this situation. So a change of leadership in any work in the church needs to be carefully managed. There needs to be what we sometimes call today succession management. So if one ox retires, well, you need to bring another one in first. Otherwise, the one that is yoked to will go mad or will just go in its own direction. So that needs to be managed carefully. And sometimes to resolve a conflict like between these two women, at least one person must be humble. One of the two, at least, must be humble. Because they both have their own ideas as to what direction to go in, somebody's going to have to back down. And it's a humble person who will be prepared to back down. But remember what Paul said about Christ who humbled himself. How was he regarded in heaven? He was highly exalted. And it's the humble person who's prepared to back down in a conflict who will be the most honored if they do it for the sake of unity in the church. And just to end with that, if we are inspired by the attitude Christ showed in coming into this world as a servant, then conflicts can be resolved. If someone is not inspired by Christ's example, you have to ask yourself, are they a genuine believer or not? And so when there is conflict in a church, it's up to everybody involved to say, I want to have the same attitude as Christ, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And on that note, we'll just come to the Lord in prayer, and then I'll hand back to Ian. Our Father, we thank you for the magnitude of the Lord's journey. Although he was equal with God, he came into this world, he humbled himself, he had no reputation. He became a servant. And yet, in heaven's eyes, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. Help us, Father, really to understand these lessons. We pray that we go deep into our hearts, into our instincts, so that any situation that we are in, we will immediately and instinctively react the way Christ lived. We pray that we would have the mind of Christ and that our mind would be the same as his. In Jesus' name, amen.